0: You're tuning into the Real Estate Diversification Podcast, hosted by trusted and experienced real estate attorneys who are also seasoned real estate investors themselves. Are you ready to explore unique real estate investing opportunities? Ready to learn about emerging trends and new ideas? Your hosts will help you understand the practical and legal complexities of a myriad of real estate investments so that you can maximize your potential and achieve financial freedom. Now, listen in and get ready to learn. Get ready to learn.
1: Welcome back, Red Podcast Nation. Um, the topic of this podcast is key lease provisions in office leasing. Um, the next provision of this lease was alterations and also usually bundled with alterations. you see provisions about restoration. So the landlord will may give the tenant the right to make changes to the premises during the term. Typically, the landlord wants to see uh, plans, They want their expert to review it. There's usually a fee associated with the review. They don't want the tenant going in there and building some white elephant improvement that they are then going to have to take out at the end of the term at their own expense. Um, Oftentimes, this is where the restoration obligation, oftentimes landlords will say that they will allow the tenant to make improvements conditioned on their right to demand the tenant restore the restore the premises to the way it was prior to the alteration at the end of the term. Well, the tenant doesn't like, not that gives the landlord maximum flexibility. The landlord can say, they can wait until the very end, and then they say, okay, we need you to tear that out. Well, the tenant would like to know in advance, and in fact, the tenant often would like, the, like to know that they don't have any obligation to, to uh, tear out the improvements that they made. And so... Uh, A reasonable compromise often is that the landlord can condition the alterations, approval of the alterations on condition that they be restored, and they will tell the tenant at the time they approve the alterations, if they approve it, that that it's conditioned on the restoration at the end of the term. That, That way, everybody knows going in, when the alterations are done, what happens at the end of the term. And the landlord, it isn't just simply up to the landlord's whim and the te- tenant can't simply build something that's uneconomic for the landlord that the landlord has to deal with after the lease term is over. Uh, next provision in this lease uh, was insurance. And you can tell that this was a tenant's lease once again because it had insurance obligations for the landlord. And that's unusual because uh, a landlord's lease doesn't make any mention of the landlord's uh, insurance requirements. It only gives requirements for the tenant it says, so typically in these insurance provisions, kind of what you would expect that um, it says you've got to have this much coverage. You can't have a deductible over this amount. Um, and then the insurance company needs to be uh, financially capable of, of of paying out in the case that there's a claim, a, a casualty. And <clears throat> there's uh, a guide for the insurance industry called the best guide, and it rates insurance companies on financial ability and then or, or financial size and financial ability. It gives, it gives them a, a rating. And typically the these requirements are expressed in the lease as a as, as the best guide rating and so there's like say there's one for size and there's one for creditworthiness worthiness. Um, the the landlord oftentimes will just want to say that it's up to the landlord and the tenant has to meet whatever the landlord requires and often say that the landlord can change the requirement as they go along well once again as a tenant's point tenant standpoint you don't want to you don't want to be dependent on the landlord to make this determination, particularly when it can affect your costs. Uh, So the tenant really wants to have a determination going in and if the landlord wants to change the requirements, say, require more coverage uh, at a later date, well, that can be done at renewal time and that the lease can be modified through an amendment and then the landlord will will tell the tenant what they want. It becomes a whole negotiation. It's not just a one-sided thing. Um, the uh, And then the flip side of that is the tenant just typically wants to be able to say, well, my insurance is what my insurance is, and this is what we have on our other locations. This is what we're going to have on this location, or at least this is what we're going to have in this location. Really don't want the landlord dictating the insurance requirements. And this is typically more important when the tenant is small or they're financially, I'm not going to say necessarily shaky, but they don't have deep pockets, lots of resources. The insurance becomes very important, right? Because if all the tenants, all the tenants' equipment catches fire, when the tenant doesn't have the money to replace the equipment, they're out of business. And if they're out of business, they're probably not going to continue to pay their rent. So the landlord wants to make sure that they they have the ad, adequate coverage. Uh, flips, same sort of thing actually as the tenant's concern, right? If the building catches on fire and the building burns down, and this is a very successful location for the tenant, they want to make sure that the landlord has the insurance to rebuild um, the building itself and and all the improvements in it so the tenant can go right back into the same location in the same building or replacement building and and continue operating their business. Um, Provisions associated with that and the insurance the tenant will typically, and this this lease said that the that the insurance could be satisfied by a blanket policy, which means it covers more than one location. Oftentimes when you see a landlord's lease, it has what it has a what's called a demand for a per location endorsement. And what that means is essentially the, the tenant has to have that amount of insurance that covers every location. So if you if it's two million dollars and you have 10 locations, the tenant is actually charged with having $20 million worth of insurance, which may be a ridiculous amount of uh, insurance, but also the it also that protects the landlord because they know that if there are claims elsewhere, there's still going to be money to pay claims at this location. Two other terms that you often see in close proximity to the insurance provisions are um, casualty and condemnation provisions. Uh, <clears throat> waiver of sub waiver of subrogation and indemnity and typically you see all those clustered together um, the casualty provision tells you who bears the risk of loss if there's damage um, typically when there's property damage uh the the waiver of subrogation comes into play and the waiver of subrogation is sort of an inside term of art uh and something that non-lawyers and non-insurance people it might not even rise to their level of awareness, but what a waiver of subrogation for property insurance says that um, in our example before the building catches fire, the building burns down and uh, <clears throat> destroys all the tenants' uh, equipment, say computers and uh, phones and so forth in there. Well, then each will each will bear each each party's insurance company will bear the risk of loss the the landlord's insurance company will pay for the building the tenant's insurance company will pay for the tenant's property and neither insurance company will pursue the other so it doesn't matter who was wrong it doesn't matter whether the tenant's pro- or it could be the, that the tenant's property caught fire and it burned down the landlord's building in either case each insurance company if there's a mutual waiver of subrogation and you <clears throat> that that each insurance company will then not pursue the other insurance company with a claim. And if you've ever been in an uninsured motorist accident where someone, uh, or, or actually, if you've ever been in a situation where there's an insured party, you got an automobile accident, your insurance company may pay you off and write you a check. Um, and then but what they'll, they will then do is they will turn around and pursue the other party to reimburse them for the money that they were out to pay to you. And so that's the concept of subrogation, right? Is that the your claim against the other party becomes the insurance company's claim? That's called subrogation. In waiver of subrogation, it means the landlord or the the uh, landlord's insurance company or the tenant's insurance company, whichever the case is, has agreed not to pursue the other party and the other party's insurance company. So insurance companies typically aren't crazy about this because it's actually true insurance. They don't they have to pay that claim and they don't have anybody else to come tag and say, okay, we paid this, you need to pay us. And then the, uh, let's see, condemnation is if there's a taking by a governmental entity. So sometimes there'll be a road right-of-way widening and, um, and part of the parking lot will be taken or part of the building will be taken, might even take part of the tenant's premises to, to accomplish setbacks or so forth so that so the uh, so um, the the condemnation clause typically says, you know, who bears the risk of loss in that situation, and the government is the the, the taking entity is the source of the funds. The way I've always negotiated the uh, the condemnation language is whoever bears the risk of loss in the event of a casualty should also be the same party or has the restoration duty in the event of a casualty is the same party that should get the condemnation proceeds in the event of a taking the, so if the, if the landlord is responsible for restoring not only the building, but all of the alterations and so forth that the tenant has built inside the premises, if there's a fire or a tornado, then, and, uh, then, then if they're bearing that loss, then they should get the insurance proceeds. If And so then it becomes a, an issue of fairness if the landlord then is not able to collect the condemnation funds if there's a condemnation. So, but often you'll see in tenants' leases and landlord's leases, people want their cake and eat it too. So they'll say, okay, in the event of a condemnation, I get the the condemnation funds uh, for my loss, but if there's a casualty, you have to restore it. And and I usually tell the the attorney on the other side, you can have one or the other, but you can't have both. Pick which one you want. Either you've got the duty to restore and you get the condemnation funds, or you don't have the duty to restore and you don't get the condemnation funds. And I usually leave it up to them. It's like, you you pick. I think these are both remote possibilities. Condemnation is probably more remote than casualty, but typically my my uh, my stance on that is that that you can have one or the other, can't have both. And then uh, and then oftentimes, along with the insurance, the casualty and condemnation language. Oh, sorry, and casualty and condemnation language. Usually, if the event that happens is significant enough, there's a termination right. And sometimes it's the landlord's termination, right? Sometimes it's the tenant's termination, right? Sometimes they both have a termination, right? So let's say that the condemnor comes along and takes half of the tenant's premises, that, that um, the landlord's going to restore the building, but half of the tenant's premises are lost. In that case, typically the tenant would have a, a termination, right? Or at least would desire to have a termination, right? Because they were intending to operate in the entire space, not half of it. And then in a similar sort of scenario, um, only with casually instead of condemnation, if there's a fire and it burns down half of the building, the landlord wants the right to terminate the lease. And often if the, and because it just may not make sense to rebuild the same type of structure in the same place and lease it to the same tenants. And uh, typically the 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 uh, tenant will say, okay, you, you may have that right, but you've got to, terminate the leases of all similarly situated tenants. You just can't pick and choose and decide to terminate my lease because I've got a favorable lease rate. Let's say you see these things clustered together. The last one of these that you see clustered together, but did not see clustered together in this particular lease that I was uh, looking at the other day um, is the indemnification provision. Indemnification provision is is very inside the legal world, there are not a lot of people who understand it well, and not to speak ill of my fellow practitioners, but i found some very seasoned lawyers that, that didn't really grasp indemnification. It's unusual because you can have a clause that reads exactly the same for the landlord and exactly the same for the tenant, and it's still no good for either party. Um, typically, when you see mirror image clauses, people look at those and they say, well, that's fair. That makes sense. I'll, I'm willing to accept that. There are many ways to get indemnification wrong. And I should tell you what indemnification means. Indemnification simply means hold the other party harmless. So what indemnification deals with is negligence and liability. It, and there's many ways to divide the responsibilities. A typical one says the landlord is responsible for everything outside the premises, unless the tenant causes it. So an example would be the the tenant does something in the common area that injures another party and then the landlord is sued for that. In that case, the land, the, the indemnification obligation uh, would ex- would extend if, if, and we're saying that negligence is not in dispute, it's been established, it's, perhaps it's even gone through a court case and the decision's been made. In that case, the tenant has to pay the, the cost of the landlord to make that injured party whole, and so the the division there is geographic, right? If it's in the common area, it's the landlord's problem. Whatever happens, and there may be you know the there may be an injury in there that the tenant had nothing to do with, but everyone in the building gets sued because their name is on the directory. In that case, it would be the landlord's obligation to indemnify the tenant because it didn't happen within the tenant's premises if that's the if that's the breakdown inside the premises, outside the premises. And so in that scenario, if something happened inside the tenant's premises and a party was injured the and it wasn't caused by the landlord. So you could have a scenario where the landlord has a workman inside the space doing repairs and somehow they managed to injure a customer client of the tenant. Uh, then in that case, the landlord would be responsible, but absent that scenario, then the tenant is simply responsible for anything that happens within inside the space. That's an equitable apportionment. There are many ways to do indemnification correctly. and there's probably just as many or more uh, ways to do indemnification incorrectly. This is this is why, as I talked about in the my first podcast is that you need to assemble a team and among the among the team needs to be your insurance agent and your attorney. So that they understand these provisions and make sure that you're protected. Uh, The the attorney is going to make sure that the indemnification provision is fair and your insurance agent is going to make sure that you have the coverage that you need to pay off any any scenario that's likely to happen um, should some unfortunate event occur um, in this case with inside the premises. Uh, Next provision in this lease was uh, assigning assigning, assignment excuse me (coughs) sorry assignment and subletting. So the tenant may decide, well, we would like to move on to a different space. And we know that we don't have a termination, right? We can't get out of the lease. So what we want to do is assign this lease to another party. So they come in, they take over the space, they take over the rent payments, and we're off the hook and uh, we go on our merry way. And we, we either go to another location or just simply close this one up. And so and there is a distinction between assignment and sublet, and one of the ways that there's a distinction a sublet would include a scenario where the tenant leases a portion of their space to another party, and in that case, the they don't that party doesn't have a relationship with the landlord. Their relationship is with the tenant, and so the tenant beco- tenant becomes a sub landlord at leasing the space to a sub tenant um if you're a tenant you want language that's as flexible as possible you want to be able to sign t- to anyone if you're you're operating a a fashion store you might want to be able to lease this lease the space to within this is in a retail context but uh, and I, I'm not quickly coming up with a scenario in an office context because office environments are typically pretty staid as long as everyone's obs- observing the the rules and regulations, but you might have a situation at retail space where uh, you have a fashion tenant that's selling clothing and then decides to lease to a liquor store or a smoke shop or something that's less desirable than that. A landlord might not like that in their tenant mix. There's possible scenarios in, a, in an office uh, s- scenario as well, but more likely it's not so much the use as the use is going to be specified as office use. In the lease, and uh, but it's maybe the creditworthiness of the tenant or the the credit history of the tenant. So tenant, if the landlord has a national tenant with good credit, and the, that national tenant then wants to uh, assign or sublet the space to a tenant that's less credit credit worthy, then the landlord might very well have an objection. In this lease, tenant's lease, tenant's form lease, it did have a consent provision. Uh, typically, in a tenant's lease, it's going to say that we have to get your consent, but it can't be unreasonably withheld or conditioned or delayed. And then, also in this lease, there was a pre-approved uh, assignment or sublet provision, and that was for a related entity. So, if the if uh, the the business was part of a larger organization that had other subsidiaries or affiliate businesses, if the entity was controlling controlled by or under common control with the same company, then they would have the right to assign that at any time just simply by giving the landlord notice. Land, This is a provision that's, that's it's not in every lease. Uh, some landlords don't want to uh, agree to uh, sublet or, or assign or sublet to any tenant. Um, and they, they, they always want it conditioned on their unrestricted approval or disapproval right um, but this in when there are when there is a pre-approved uh, provision in a lease this is the most common that they can assign it to an affiliate business. Then we come to the default section of the lease and then as the, I have a good friend of mine who's a banker he says our loan documents uh, this much of the lease is about when everything goes right or, or loan documents sorry mortgage uh, this is this is this much of our our document is when everything goes right. And this much of the document is when things go wrong. And it spells out what happens after things go wrong, typically meaning that the the borrower does not pay. The uh, default remedies are very important uh, from the landlord standpoint. And um, there is a, a bit of negotiation that can go on in these in this particular lease, once again, you can tell that it's a, uh, that it's a tenant lease. And one of the ways that you can tell is there's no what's called acceleration language. And acceleration language is like uh, calling a, a mortgage note due and payable for default. So uh, if someone doesn't pay their mortgage, the bank does not wait for 30 years and, or the 30th year of the loan before they sue the, the defaulting borrower for the money that they're owed. There's a, there's this acceleration clause that says, if you don't pay us timely or at all, then we can call the entire amount due and payable all in one lump sum today. Uh, you can have a similar provision in a lease. Landlords like an acceleration provision for the same reasons that lenders like an accelerated acceleration provision. <clears throat> Tenants, of course, dislike it for the same reason the uh, and there are in the default provisions there's often there's other remedies if there's a security deposit landlord can can uh, cure any default that can be cured just simply with payment of money like making repairs they can take that out of the security deposit demand that the tenant replenish it um and then uh, oftentimes they can terminate the lease if they terminate the lease oftentimes they have an acceleration right uh tenants typically try to fight that acceleration language. And then often at the landlord's option, the landlord can uh, choose to uh, relet the premises to a new tenant, never releasing the existing tenant, defaulting tenant. And then the tenant would be responsible for making up any shortfall every month. So you find a new tenant, but the new tenant can't pay as much as the defaulting tenant. And so the landlord still gets the benefit of their bargain. They get the entire rent Only the new tenant pays part of it and the old tenant pays whatever the difference is between the the benefit of the bargain that the landlord had with the old tenant and what they can collect from the new tenant. Um, In this lease, uh, this isn't really one of the most important provisions in the lease, but I touch upon it because lots of folks don't understand it, including people in the legal profession. And it's called the quiet enjoyment clause. And it just, it simply says in there, the tenant will basically be able to enjoy the premises uh, during their term of occupancy and they won't be disturbed in their occupancy. And what a lot of folks think this means is kind of common parlance of quiet enjoyment. Think, well, it's going to be quiet and I'm going to enjoy it here and no one's going to disturb me and, and life will be good. And, uh, I won't have conflicts with the other tenants and so forth. That's not what the that's not what the legal term of our quiet enjoyment means. Quiet enjoyment, from a legal perspective, that means that there's not going to be another party that says, "Oh, I've already leased that space, or I've uh, I've got a le- I've got a deal on that space, and I have the right to occupy it, and you don't." So it's is a totally different sort of thing than what you expect just from even from reading the provision. Oftentimes, you can't tell that that's that's the import of that clause. So it's just something to impress your friends at cocktail parties when you can tell them about quiet and enjoyment, and you learned it right here on the Red Podcast. Uh, next provision in this lease was about signs. And signs, of course, are probably mo- much more important to the tenant than they are to the landlord. The landlord's probably kind of agnostic about signs, except to the extent that they create a, a, a cluttered appearance on the building. So. If, the tenant may, large tenant, office tenant, typically will want signing re- sign rights on the exterior of the building. So if you you know travel trial down the interstate, you see a big office building, often at the very top, there's the name of one tenant. And in, in, in some cases, you might see the name of two tenants up at the top of the building. Those typically are, if there's one, it's the largest occupant in the building. If there's two, it's the largest two occupants in the building. Um, if it's a big building and there's lots of space on the on the facade of the building, two signs might not look that bad. However, if you've got a tenant that's paying a whole lot of money uh, because they're occupying three quarters of the building and they get a sign and the tenant that's occupying 10% of the building also gets a sign, you can create animosity uh, between the landlord and that larger tenant. And they're thinking, well, you know, this was a big point of negotiation that I got this sign on here. And now, now it seems like, well, you're giving a sign to basically just anybody. And so that's, it can be a ticklish subject, but um, that visibility is important to that office tenant. So uh, it, it says, that, that, and sometimes there's no one's allowed to have a sign on the exterior building. It's, it, um, and uh, all of that is like I say, it's something that's very important to the tenant. Um, the, sometimes the landlord will say, well, we're going to put up a directory in the lobby and that's it or we'll have a monument sign out in front of the building. Also in some jurisdictions, you're not allowed to put signs on the exterior of the building. They like a nice clean appearance. And so all that you will have is either monument signage or directory signage, or maybe just one of the two, or at least maybe just maybe just directory signage. Um, but like I say, it's an important consideration. Uh, this is something, like I say, it's more important to the tenant typically than it is somewhat more important to the tenants than it is to the landlord then uh in this lease once again they they have this tactic of where they buried a provision deep into the lease and it's not where you would expect it because we talked about repairs some time ago and it appeared much earlier in this lease and in this lease and it and there was no mention of this but uh earlier in the lease but toward the end of the lease there's what's called a tenant's self-help right so that says if the landlord fails to make repairs, that the tenant can just do the repairs, bill the landlord for it. And then the, um, well, I think we did touch on this, but then the real hammer for that is that I, I, I went ahead and touched on it without it being actually the right place in the lease. But uh, the, uh, the tenant, the real hammer for that is that the tenant can offset the rent. So tenant goes out, fixes a hole in the roof, and tenant spends $10,000 and their rent is a month, that means they don't pay rent for 10 months. And the landlord may be counting on that income and wasn't counting on the cost. But because the tenant was wise enough to negotiate this point, um, the landlord's waiting until the rent starts back up again. Uh, Once again, tenants like this provision, landlords fight it. uh, and And landlords who do a very good job of maintaining their property and taking care of it, um, they fight this type of, type of provision because they don't know the quality. Um, and then it can get into even deeper negotiations where it can only be approved contractors or a pre-approved list or, um, and, and so forth. And Or tenant has the right to make the repairs, but tenant doesn't have the right to offset the rent. The tenant can send the landlord a bill. Of course, if you're the tenant, you don't like that because it's like, well, I paid this and now I've asked you to pay me. And I don't know whether or not you're going to pay me back or when you're going to pay me back. So I like this offset rent, rent remedy. Um, we're getting down toward the end. Uh, one of the, and, the, and I, I have not covered exhibits. We'll do that here in just a second. But as I, uh, I think I told you in the earlier podcast um, or earlier in this podcast, this lease that I was looking at to prepare this presentation was 49 pages long. Most of that was lease, but a good substantial portion, a portion of it was exhibits. And these may be things that are, are not important and are not addressed for years, um, but um, it makes good sense to negotiate those up front rather than just simply having a clause that says, well, so-and-so will do X and so-and-so will do Y and the form of the agreement isn't spelled out or worse yet one party has the right to say, we'll use our form on this and you'll just sign whatever it is that we send to you. Um, last provision, before some catch-all provisions at the very end of the lease that, that covers some some basic things that we won't touch upon today, uh, landlord has the right to enter the property, access it. This, this lease, tenant's form lease, said that the landlord would have this right, but that they could be escorted and that they would have to give Five days prior notice. Um, there was no difference between landlord access at the first day of the uh, <coughs> excuse me, the first day of the lease or the last day of the lease. Obviously, if the tenant has announced um, or has either failed to renew or has announced their intention not to renew, landlord wants to begin to market that property as soon as they can. Oftentimes, the landlord, in that last six months, so once once they the tenant has not exercised the renewal option, the landlord would want a right to put a a sign up on the exterior of the building that says for lease. Well, if it's a single tenant building, it's going to be pretty obvious that this tenant is either going out of business, going someplace else, something's occurring. Oftentimes the tenant has not told their employees six months in advance that this location is closing and that they will be working from a new location or perhaps no longer have a job. Um, So there's some friction there. Uh, And so in this tenants form lease, there was no mention of that. In a landlord's form lease, obviously they're going to they're going to want those rights at the end, and they're going to be different than the rights that they are during the beginning of the term of the lease. Uh, the The last substantive provision in the lease that we're going to cover is the force majeure clause, and it's a French term. It means major force, uh, and so this is talking about when the party's ability to perform is interrupted. There could be strikes, uh, unanticipated weather, and just unanticipated circumstances. Uh, oh, COVID. The, th- so through no fault of their own, either the landlord can't perform their obligations under the lease, they're pre- prevented from it through, like I say, through no fault of their own, or uh, usually the provision is reciprocal. The tenant also is excused from performance Um, if they're prevented from it through no fault of their own. Typically, this does not extend to things that are simply the payment of money. So the tenant can't say, well, we didn't make as much money as we thought we were going to make last month. And so we can't pay the rent this month. And I'm claiming force majeure because typically financial obligations, payment of money are are excluded from, from force majeure. But it's just uh, sort of a fundamental fairness if it's if it's circumstances beyond your control and you have the you would otherwise have the ability to perform or you even have the desire perhaps to perform but can't um the the landlord should not have all of those default remedies or vice versa and in this in this lease uh something was really unusual about this is that the um In certain default situations, the tenant had the right to terminate the lease, which you almost never see in a commercial lease. It's highly unusual. Um, Tenant usually has to have a a, uh, very strong upper hand to be able to get a tenant's termination right for a landlord default. Okay, now, well, I'll just go through a list of what the exhibits were. Um, There was a construction exhibit which talks about the initial improvements that are going to be built in the space. And if perhaps if the landlord construct those or tenant const, construct those, um, the, uh, and that will all be spelled out in the construction exhibit. There was a memorandum, which talks about the start date. Typically, it gets exchanged when the rent commences, and it'll say, this is when the lease commences. This is what the rent commences. When the rent commences, this is what the rent amount is. This is when the lease expires, so forth. Sometimes that the, the, uh, one of the parties will want to record that, and that's a point of negotiation. Landlords often don't like memorandums to be recorded because tenants fail to uh, clear those from the records and uh, sign a release so that those are not, no longer records. So it looks like the tenant still has an attachment or a right to occupy the space, and, and they've actually moved on. And then, uh, a new tenant coming in might do an investigation and say, and We can't lease this space because you've already leased it to this other tenant. Then there is a an estoppel certificate, and an estoppel certificate is just a snapshot in time, and either party can typically request that. And it's very similar to the memo uh, in the in the beginning. It says, "This is these are the parties. This is the rent. These are this is the length of the term. The tenant has not prepaid rent." The landlord is not in any kind of a default. Typically, lenders want to see this sort of thing in a refinancing situation um, for the uh, owner. Uh, Tenants may request it. It's typically not as important to the tenant as it is to the landlord or landlord's lender. Then um, there was, in this lease, there was a document called a non-disturbance agreement. And oftentimes, you'll see this as a subordination and non-disturbance agreement. The non-disturbance agreement just simply said, if the landlord defaults on the loan and the property is foreclosed, the tenant will not be evicted, or the lease will not be terminated. Actually, the lease will not be terminated because of the foreclosure, so long as the tenant's not in default. But the landlord typically wants to see and the landlord lender wants to see is a statement that says that the tenant's lease is subordinate to the mortgage so that it would be um, term- normally terminated uh, in the event of a foreclosure because by subordinating it, basically you're changing the dates. The If the lease was signed uh, on in 2020 and the foreclosure takes place in 2021 then the or the or the loan was made in 2021 let's say the foreclosure took place in 2022 then the lender would take the property subject to the tenant's rights meaning they can't terminate the lease the tenant gets to stay as long as the tenant pays they stay forever in the absence of any agreement if the lease was signed in 2020 the loan was uh, done in 2021 and the foreclosure was in 2022 then the if if there is a subordination agreement, what that does is change those dates as if the mortgage was earlier in time than the lease. And in that case, first in time is first in right. And so if the lender forecloses, they would be able to terminate the lease. However, the so the lease gets subordinated to the mortgage. The mortgagee likes that. However, they also agree and uh, that in the event that there is a foreclosure, that's this, this is the non-disturbance part of the agreement, just like the simple non-disturbance agreement we just talked about. It also has a similar provision that says that so long as the tenant's not in default, even though the lease is subordinate to the mortgage, they won't be, their lease will not be terminated in the event of a foreclosure provided. They're also not in default of the lease. And then you have exhibits like uh, the legal description of the property, which is important if you're researching the title of the property and certainly that would be a consideration if you purchase it and and many tenants if they're they're making a long-term commitment they do a title search on a property to make sure that the, that the party that they're leasing from is actually um, the owner of the property so there's no restrictions on the use of the property and so forth and then oftentimes there's a site plan of the entire property and if, if building or project Oh, and also one of the premises. So those are your those are key lease provisions in an office lease. And I hope that you've learned something. Thank you for joining us for the Red Podcast. Invest wisely. See you next time.
0: Thanks for listening to the Real Estate Diversification Podcast. Did you enjoy the episode? Visit www.rediversification.com to tune in to more exciting episodes and free information and tools that will help you succeed. Leave us a review and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and our other social media channels at the RED Podcast. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Missouri Bar Advertising Disclosure. Neither the Supreme Court of Missouri nor the Missouri Bar reviews nor approves certifying organizations or specialist designations. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely upon advertisements.